All right, welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. I'm Kevin Libwit with Andrew Page. We're from Theogen, and today we're going to be talking about public health responses to emerging infectious diseases. This is something we are, of course, at this point, no stranger to around the world. Um, but this, you know, it, it, with respect to the COVID-19 global pandemic, we all saw public health at the front lines of really all of our lives, in the media, in our personal lives, et cetera. And, but these continue to be emerging threats around the world. This is something that's always on the mind of public health scientists and microbiologists alike. And even, you know, mo most recently in the face of the mycoplasm uh, conversation and emergence of those uh, spikes of infections across the world, there's always the conversation of uh, what does public health response look like? And so hopefully today we can give a little bit of insight into what's happening on the laboratory side? What is the perspective of infectious disease microbiologists on the bioinformatics and preparedness front uh, to give some uh, a bit of a picture of what this world looks like? And obviously both you and I have some experience in this with COVID-19, but you know, really, again, many years of experience of hearing these threats kind of emerge across, um, across the world, across our careers. And we see these kinds of conversations murmur about um, pretty much every year. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, uh, yeah, as, as you mentioned, what spawned this conversation is, uh, you know, news articles declaring white lung in children as like the next big problem. Um, and it is in China and it is a problem, obviously, you know, because people become severely ill. <clears throat> and that's my, uh, microplasm pneumonia. Yes. And uh, sorry, I'm terrible names. Uh, but also it's been renamed to uh, mycoplasmoides uh, pneumoniae, which is just going to confuse people because databases are going to come back with totally different things. And if you look at both of them, they are totally crazy and no one has any consensus because it's a new name. Taxonomous should be banned from changing anything because they like to fiddle around, you know, and then they rename something that happens to be become important. <clears throat> anyway. Um, so it's come about because of that. And then, you know, you, I've, I've seen more articles recently, and I think there is a, an increase in cases in Denmark. Now, the thing is, these things come up all the time. And what people worry about is, has there been some change to the, uh, to the organism, which is causing more severe disease or more drug resistance, or, you know, you know something which is just really worrying, um, or is it spreading faster? And that's always the top of our mind. And actually the worst ones are where they don't know the causative uh, agent, you know, is it uh, a microbe? Is it a, like, is it a virus? Um, is it, you know, some kind of chemical contamination? You know, there's so many different things it could be. Um, and it's those first few days where people, you know, really, really worry when there's a, something is recognized, but thereafter, you know, the public health response kicks in as a, you know, if it's, if it's a microbe, and people get to work and you could see with say COVID-19 where they did um, shotgun sequencing on people who were in intensive care, you know, unexplained cases in intensive care. And they found, oh, there's, you know, SARS-CoV-2 or what we now know of uh, SARS-CoV-2, a coronavirus, pity coronavirus. And they're like, oh, that must be it. You know, we haven't seen this before. We know it causes disease in humans. It's a problem. And, <clears throat> but there is a set of steps, you know, that public health around the world always think, you know, when something new is emerging, and Kevin, you've worked in public health uh, in an actual yeah. lab, you know, on the front lines. Yes. So you should probably have a better idea than I do. Yeah, I and I got a perspective of this too, even how my experience at the public health lab has translated to my own lens of whenever I'm hearing these news stories and, and whether or not, okay, is this going to be something or is this not going to be something? And, you know, the 
to hedge all of our conversations. We we ultimately don't know, right? It can also, there's always the non-zero probabilities that we're wrong. But I think the lens I tend to look at these, uh, the news stories of the potential outbreaks is looking at maybe three pillars, I would say, at least the three that most readily come to mind. And that's looking at it in terms of the novelty of the pathogen, the pathogenicity. So like, you know, how it's actually infecting and, and the severity of illness um, and then transmissibility. And so whenever these most recent cases of mycoplasm um, were emerging, in looking at all three of those categories, it ranks relatively low. It's not novel really at all. In fact, we, we, we have very defined uh, medical uh, responses to these, uh, in, this infectious disease. It's very well characterized. Um, and it, it's something we know well in the community. In, in fact, every year anticipate uh, the emergence of, the, of this disease. In terms of pathogenicity too, as well, this is not something that's, I think maybe in, in Southeast Asia, they were talking about a little bit more of the severe cases, but even in those cases and instances, it's not a terribly severe illness. And, you know, again, as things continue to emerge and, and move on, maybe we'll see something different and that would cause a bit more concern. But I think in general with mycoplasm, it's, um, it goes often unreported even. Uh, because it, it's such a cold-like symptom and people will maybe stay in bed and then uh, are able to um, rid themselves of the disease even without medical treatment. And then also in terms of the transmissibility, right? This is also relatively low where, um, you know, there is some conversation of, of current uh, spikes of this disease, but it's nothing that would necessarily cause concern. But so like with that frame of those three categories of novelty, pathogenicity, and transmissibility, you know, taking us back to March or or rather maybe December of 2019 into the spring early years or early months of uh, 2020, novelty was super high. The, the the pathogenicity was a relatively unknown, and we didn't know how in, in, intense it was going to be. We were seeing kind of various reports, uh, and then the transmissibility was like off the charts. So that's when it was like this is something that's like whoa, we don't know how crazy this is going to be, and that's where the alarm bells uh, started ringing. So. And then we, we were approaching all three of those fronts to try to know more about it. In terms of the novelty, we all started sequencing it so we could better understand what the heck is this disease? What are the key factors? What are we looking at? Okay, we're looking at the spike protein and the ways in which it's mutating over time. Transmissibility, you saw all the different data trends that were being tracked by the epidemiologists around the world. And then the transmissibility, we were trying to curb as much as possible with all the non-pharmaceutical public health interventions uh, that we had at our disposal. So that's more or less the mindset that I have when I'm reading these articles. Okay, is the novelty, how novel is this? How well are we equipped and to understand and to combat this disease? What is the severity of the disease in terms of its impact on patients and how quickly is it uh, transmitting across um, localities and even internationally uh, with uh, travel and things like this? But then uh, as mathematicians, I know um, one of our colleagues, you know, did the first thing that most of us would do is to test, um, do our pipelines work absolutely with the definitive yes. um type strains you know for this and then going and mining in the in the public archives you know like is there any recent data does it work with that you know just double checking we we know in our hearts that absolutely it will work because it's you know why wouldn't it you know it's just yes. a, another yes, another uh, bacteria that uh, we work on and so we knew it, it should work and it was just a double check to see and con to confirm yes it does work and we've done all these extra tests to you know reassure ourselves that uh, we can uh, say assemble it, we can call AMR from it, we can um, 
do whatever we need to do to detect it so that if someone goes actually this is a problem we know absolutely yeah we can spin it up immediately and be confident in the results yeah and i think that speaks to this particular outbreak or this particular pathogen again to the novelty it, it already we didn't have to modify any of our current tools at least when, when i say our i mean like on the theogen side our theoprope workflow using the gambit database based off RefSeq, it was already in there we had never come across these types of data but it was already something that kind of is in the established literature and the established databases where it is pretty well known. So that's where, when I'm looking at this current conversation of mycoplasm, you know, uh, I'm watching the trends, but it's not like I've got alarm bells ringing and like, okay, I'm thinking about, we got to stock up for another big one or something like that. But, you know, again, you and I have seen these kinds of conversations ebb and flow. Uh, So I don't know what the lens you look at um, these kinds of conversations at. Yeah, I've seen uh, many, many, many uh, different scares and unknowns over the years, and they come and go. I mean, obviously, viruses are, are more of a problem because um, you don't have antibiotics there to, to help you. Um, with obviously flu being a new novel, flu being the, the uh, worst offender, usually, uh, obviously, not recently, coronavirus. And like a few years ago, I remember there was a, a beta coronavirus, which is now called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Yes. And then you'd SARS as well. And, you know, there's a lot of hoopla over those. Luckily, it didn't cause widespread problems. Um, I say MERS, uh, it was more people who were severely immunocompromised were made severely ill, but it didn't cause problems in the community. And then SARS, obviously, I think they did a study about a year or two after it came out and they found basically everyone in the world had antibodies to it because it just spread so mildly that no one even noticed. Um, and then we had Zika, which obviously is a big problem for a little while, um, particularly mycocephaly. Uh, but again, that fizzled out very rapidly, and it's it, these kind of things. And monkeypox, actually, I remember that kicked off just as we were finishing uh, COVID sequencing in, yeah. in my group, and we we're like, "Oh, great, another uh, major problem." Uh, but th- at the time, I remember reading, "Oh, uh, the longest chain of transmission ever for monkeypox was six individuals, so six jumps that had been recorded, so which isn't very much." And it just, it appeared to be just, it so happened to get into a population where it could expand, but it didn't expand beyond that. And of course, there is an effective vaccine, uh, public health interventions, um, you know, and, and awareness seemed to just put a cap on a lot of it. And then it ran through the susceptible population very rapidly, and then it stopped more or less, you know, and something that would have been a big concern about a year ago is now like not even on the radar. And that's what's super difficult about our field is the communication of the nuance because it get it meet, reaches the broadcast of like, you know, huge media and it feels like all the little blurps that may be like kind of yellow flags get super sensationalized that everything is a red flag. And so it, it it's hard to for, you know, if you're outside of our field to, you know, delineate what are the true threats versus what's likely not a threat, because they all get reported as this is going to be the next thing. Like if you see some of these articles on mycoplasm, even to give it that really scary moniker of white lung disease or whatever it is, I've never heard it described like a, a an infectious disease of the lung described in that way, because I guess presumably they'd all be white lung in that they, you know, show in the uh, in the imaging there. Right, yeah. yeah, but so I it, it's, I don't know if that was a, a product of uh, journalism there of modern journalism to to give it that moniker and maybe that helps to some degree of uh, the, you know increase awareness but I think it may also have the unintended consequence of 
uh, people just starting to filter out the noise. So, and you saw that a little bit, you know, with SARS-CoV-2, where they're like, ah, these guys were talking about MERS last year. They talked about Zika. They talked about this. It's just the public health people getting freaking out about this. But it's often not. It's often public health folks being like, hey, this this could potentially be con- concerning. We always speak, even in this conversation, I, I always catch myself of, we're always kind of hedging our conversations because we're trained as scientists yeah. with levels of uncertainty. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate whenever you're trying to communicate out the story to the non-scientific community. So that's always been a major challenge, uh, especially in the face of these emerging infectious diseases. It's, it's a nuance that's important. And like you and I will know, let's say for most bacterial infections, you can just give antibiotics, you know, it's going to work. Um, and you can see scary headlines or whatever, but actually there is often very simple cures uh, that are widespread and effective. And the fact that it's causing problems in people, it's just because you need, there needs to be just more widespread appreciation of that this is a problem to be tested for, not that it is something where we need a novel new treatment. Um, with viruses, obviously, that's a totally different problem. So about a year ago, year and a half ago, there was an issue with uh, a lot of children in the UK, or there's a, a few dozen children in the UK needed liver transplants uh, in an emergency. And it was they suspected it was caused maybe by, say, hepatitis E, um, or they had some other theories as well. And it basically boiled down to, they think what happened was just because of lockdowns and, and, and restrictions that a lot of people didn't have uh, any natural immunity to circulating infections. And it was kind of a pent up, stored up uh, crisis. And then of course, you know, when everything was removed and all the normal um, pathogens started uh, spreading, then susceptible children, unfortunately, were um, getting severely ill and needing transplants. So it was more of a delayed rather than a, a new thing. But that caused a lot of problems for a long time because people didn't know what it was. And obviously, when damage has been done to the extent, say, that you need a liver transplant, that's too late down the road to, you know, pathogen is probably long gone from your system. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, th- those kinds of impacts of, um, I forget the, the the language people are using there, but sort of an immunity debt, like a, it, when you're locked up for that long, you're not exposed to the same pathogens, you don't have that same robust uh, immunity, and you see that population wide. And I think to some degree that is often uh, what people are attributing to the mycoplasm spikes as well, where, you know, especially on, uh, child, young children um, who, you know, would be more susceptible to these kinds of diseases. And so it's an unfortunate, but um, to some degree predictable trend uh, that we're seeing with with some of these infectious diseases after you know the post pandemic world that we're living in here. Yeah, it's unfortunate, um, and unfortunately, we're going to have more of these false alarms. Yeah. Probably, you know, ten or hundred to every actual real endemic uh, or pandemic um, disease, and yeah, it's this is par for a course. And that's why I feel like actually doing things, having these kinds of conversations and putting these out there, you know, it's not like we have a crazy wide audience here, but I I hope more of these kinds of conversations can start happening. I think there is a general thirst for the nuance of things where people are going to want to know, hey, if I see this crazy headline, is there a balancing weight in the scientific community that can help curb this? Or is the scientific community also meeting that same level of uh, alarm that way this is going to be something, you know? I guess within public health, there needs to be that extra um, capacity there, right? So that if there is something emerging, you can actually and then investigate it and potentially stop it. Because, you know, there's a routine day-to-day and that everyone needs to do and, you know, all the routine yeah. pathogens you need to keep an eye on. 
but actually you do need that extra sliver of um, essentially research time, you know, to make sure that you can actually dig into signals that you think might be a problem or it might not be a problem. Um, and yeah. sequencing goes a long way to help that because you can do same genomic sequencing, even 16S or um, yes. shotgun can help quite a lot in that regard. And that's one thing, at least I could definitely speak on the US side that we have created in during the pandemic, the public health and academic and even private partnerships that are still relatively strong so that you have that sliver of capabilities of exploration and deeper dives in understanding um, the novel threats while the public health labs is kind of routinely doing, you know, their, their day-to-day uh, public health tasks, which is often, you know, already taking up most of the bandwidth there. Absolutely, yeah. Anyway, this has been a great discussion, and hopefully we won't have another new uh, emerging pathogen next week. Yes. Um, but thank you very much, and uh, we will talk to you all next week.